Today's reading comes from Esther 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to, the ha- even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in, your- in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let-, let the king and Haman come to a feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai at- in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friend and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of sons, all the promotions which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a, gal- let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully to the king to the feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he made the gallows, and he had the gallows made. This is God's word. Good morning. You guys can be seated. Um, Normally, uh, MacAv, we're going through books of the Bible, but we're taking a bit of a break this summer, and we're going through uh, some wisdom words from uh, the Holy Scriptures, and we've had some guest speakers. So this morning, I'd like to introduce to you guys uh, Mike Hennefee. He co-pastors with Cleet Bontrager at Restore Church. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Restore Church uh, is a church very, very similar to us. They're, they're middle of, in the middle of the thick of things, and as has been spoken all of this morning, uh, these guys are in the fight for racial reconciliation, and they're more than willing to have the hard conversations that quite often, frankly, aren't willing to be had or, uh, you know, where there's no compromise in sight. So, and I'd also like to welcome, uh, Mike, your wife's name's Susan. Okay, if you guys would say hi to Susan and welcome her as well, okay, because we know that behind every great man is a great woman, a great wife, and Susan, we'd just like to honor you with that as well. So Mike, why don't you come up? Uh, If you guys would pray with me for Mike, that would be great. Their church started about 2012. They moved to Oregon, and uh, so again, they moved to Detroit for God's calling. So Mike, if I can just pray for you, brother. 
Lord Jesus, we come before you, and Lord, we pray that you would rain the Holy Spirit down on this place. Fill Mike's heart, uh, Father God, with words from you, with encouraging words for the congregation, Father God, that we might be raised up to do the work of the ministry, Father God, to evangelize the community. Thank you for Susan and Mike and their heart, Father God, for Restore, and for the community that you've put them in, willing to fight the good fight of faith, Father God, and to have those hard conversations and do the work of uh, Christ, loving the brethren. Father, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Good morning, and thank you. Let me turn on my wife, Susan. If you don't like the sermon, blame it on her. She writes them all, okay? She turns them in 10 o'clock Saturday night just to give me time, so how's this one, honey? <laughs> it is great to be here. Um, Matthew said, how should I introduce you? And I said simply with this, if God used an Old Testament, used a donkey in the Old Testament to uh, share God's word, then he can use me. So you didn't even do that or the way that I put it, did you? But that's okay. Hey, it's great to be here. Um, I have nothing to say, but I believe God has something to say. So I want to turn to him real quickly again, and then we'll dive into God's word. Father, thank you that um, you've given us the privilege of just gathering on this first day of the week to sit at your feet, uh, to lay down our burdens afresh at the feet of Jesus, uh, to be reminded of your staggering, crazy sovereignty, uh, that no matter what the headlines read, you are always large and in charge. And that doesn't lead us to passivity, that leads us to gospel-fueled activity. And yet, Father, so often our activity is hijacked by looking for love in all the wrong places and forgetting who we are and whose we are. So, Lord, I, I pray from this ever-fresh, ancient book, you would show us who we are and whose we are. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you can open up to the book of Esther, a book that with all of its crazy turns and twists would make one great movie, at least a made-for-TV movie, those cheesy kind. It'd make a great movie. Now, I'm going to be uh, diving into chapter 5, so probably the best thing to do is to uh, just kind of get us up to snuff is to rehearse quickly what happens in Esther's, Esther chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. So who here has read that book? What's an unusual thing about the book of Esther? I'm sorry? God is never explicitly mentioned. There might be, there's several uh, indirect references, but he's not mentioned. It's also about a woman, and there there are lesser books of the Bible uh, along the lines of being titled after a woman. You have Ruth. Um, So it's a crazy book. It was even kind of uh, wrestled with in the early church. Does it belong in the canon of scripture? But this is a book that shows that God is invisibly working behind the scenes for the good of his people all the time. You can't always see it, just like you look out a window and you can't see the wind, but you see the wind moving the leaves. God is always on the move. So Esther chapter 1, crazy story. It starts off with a pagan king by the name of Ahasuerus or Xerxes, whether you use the Greek or Persian name. He is drunk. Um, he's on a, a, a massive power trip, and he has a raging childish fit, namely because he wants his wife, Queen Vashti, to strut her stuff before a packed hall of drunken men on day 187 of a party. <laughs> 
She says, baby, not happening, not going to do it. And for that, what does he do to his queen, his wife? He deposes her, he divorces her, he banishes her from the throne. Chapter two, presumably he sobers up just a little bit and he's like, I've got, I don't, I don't have a queen now in our kingdom. What am I going to do? So he calls upon his advisors who pitch a plan that results in choosing Esther to become the queen of the kingdom through the means of a strong arm version of the bachelorette, uh, coupled with a, um, you might very loosely say a draft of all the women, beautiful virgin women throughout the empire who, um, we have a mixed crowd here, who, who actually go through nightly tryouts with the king. And at the end of that process, she is selected to be the queen. It's, it's a story that's very, if you, if you take away the flannel graph version and the Sunday school eyes version, it's actually a very checkered book, right? It's full of, it's, it's very morally ambiguous. It's full of systemic abuse coupled with personal compromise. That's chapter two. Chapter three, you have a guy named Haman and you have a guy named Mordecai. Do you know who Mordecai is? Mordecai is Esther's um, relative, perhaps his uncle, who raises her after her parents die when she's a young child. Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman at the king's gate. Haman being the second in charge of the empire, empire just under King Xerxes. And Haman is so ticked off about this slight that he orchestrates the annihilation of every Jewish person in the empire. And that chapter ends in very chilling fashion with the king and the second man in charge, Haman, saddling up to the bar for a stiff drink. After all, Holocaust planning is a stressful day's work. Then you get to chapter four. Chapter four contains the most memorable verse in all the book. You could say it right now. If you think of Esther, you think of this simple line. What is it? Oh, okay, that's true. You guys trump me on that one. But before that, if I perish, then I what? Perish. Now, again, you've heard the Sunday school version of that, that she was an eager, willing hero. That's not really the case. The way it plays out is uh, Mordecai, her uncle, comes to him and says, honey, your people, our people are about to get slaughtered. You need to go up into the king's presence and let him know so this thing can be averted. Well, you just couldn't come into the king's presence unsolicited. You risk losing your life. So she says, Unc, ain't happening. If I go up in his presence unsolicited, I could be done. My head will be off. And she says, not going to do it. What does Mordecai do? Many commentators think it's a not so veiled threat when he says, listen, if you don't do it, somebody else will do it. And guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to go down. So with that, she's a, va- a rather reluctant hero. And then she says, okay, I'll do it. If I perish, I perish. And before we, you know, kind of bang on her, we should say, isn't that just like us? Or when we finally are compelled to do the right thing, often it's not out of inward, holy, pious conviction, right? It's sometimes God wields external uh, pressure to get us moving in the right direction. And I'm glad he does that if that's what it takes. 
Now, it does show that she's beginning to see her identity in God because you remember what happens at the end of chapter 4? She, she calls all the Jewish people of the capital city of Susa to enter three days of prayer and fasting. There's a God dependence that's starting to be birthed in her soul, I think. And she actually calls some of the other ladies in the harem to join her in three days of prayer and fasting. So that's chapters one through four. Guess how many years that took? Four, five, six years. But now we get to the crazy twists and turns of the stories. Chapters five, six, and seven. First four chapters, five, six years. Second three chapters, less than 48 hours. And here the story slows down to super slow-mo so that we can see that God is in fact large in charge. But more than that, this, this, this particular chapter is going to tell us something about identity. Identity is a very powerful dynamic. It may, it may be the most powerful driving dynamic in your life and my life. Identity. Asking the question, who am I? I think identity, there is no more influential um, factor in the direction and the course and the outcome of your life. Who am I? What is my identity? Very, very powerful dynamic. And I think from the earliest age, people wrestle with that question, do they not? Who am I? From the earliest age, we wrestle with the question, who am I? Why am I here? What is this all about? Now, I date myself because I was born in about 1872-ish, but do you remember in the middle school and high school days how all these di different cliques emerge, right? So, um, again, going back to the 1870s, you, we had something called, some, a group of people called burnouts. Do you know what that was? Who, you're dating yourself then, okay? What were burnouts? Like, yeah, exactly. You smoke, you know, they smoked weed and that. And then you had the athletes, which were, you know, the jocks. And then you had the smart kids, which is the nice way to put it. They had a certain label to them, right? And then you had the artsy people and all down the line, right? And every group had its, was replete with its own uniforms, right? To kind of identify them, this is who I belong to. And I'm just giving that as exhibit A that almost from the moment we're born, at least the moment we start to realize there's a world around us, we, we, we ask the question, who am I? And we jump on this lifelong, wearing, tiring treadmill of seeking identity, or as I prayed, looking for love in all the wrong places. It, it, it doesn't, well, it stops when you can become an adult. Then you stop searching for your identity, right? <laughs> wrong. I mean, let's just take up marriage, for instance. How many married people find their identity in the state of their marriage? How many married people find their identity in the state of their children, their academics, right, or their athletics, even their spirituality, they can find their identity in their kids' spirituality. And then, and then the kids maybe uh, are getting ready to move on, they're getting older, and something comes up called the midlife crisis. You're asking the question, well, who am I going to be now with my kids gone? What is my life going to be centered about? What defines me? And I would just say to you that apart from having a life centered on Christ, your life is one lifelong 
identity crisis. And what we see in chapter five are two ships moving in opposite directions. In the first paragraph, verses one through eight, we're going to see what it looks like for Esther to begin to find her identity in God with all of her complicated and checkered past. We're also going to see that in the back half of chapter five, what happens when somebody, namely here Haman, does not find their identity in God, but in something or someone else. Now, before I dive into the meat of this, um, I expect a very quiet church on the other side of altar or eight mile or telegraph. But since I'm in Detroit, you can talk back. Okay, please make me feel at home. Okay, make me feel like y'all are with me. Fake it until you make it least right. Esther, number one, finds her identity in God. Esther, as we heard read, is entering, I think, a defining moment in her life. We all have them at some point. Where, as I said before, with her complicated and checkered past, she is choosing at the very risk of her life, the risk of her neck, to publicly identify with God, with God's people, and with God's covenant. Now, many years ago, archaeologists unearthed um, an ancient ancient piece of art. I think they called it a Basra relief, a kind of an engraving piece. And on this piece of art, there was a picture of a Persian king on this opulent throne and in this massive throne room with big marble statues everywhere, high and lifted up with steps climbing up to his throne. And right behind the ancient Persian king was a, was a warrior all armored up. He had a battle axe in his hand that went all the way to the floor, and he stood there. And that, and that warrior would be there behind the throne, ready to behead the person in front of the king at the king's slightest whim. That's the way it went down. A king could give the slightest look of disapproval of the person standing in front of him. Literally just look away and bam, bloody corpse falls to the ground and a bloody head rolls down those stairs going up to the throne. That's that's the way it was. So can't you just imagine if we try and enter this ancient scene as Esther is standing there uninvited before the throne? Can you imagine those tension-filled seconds? Can you imagine those heart-thumping seconds, those adrenaline-rushing seconds as she is wondering, is this the last breath I'm ever going to breathe? Is this guy going to throw that axe right in my head? But of course, in that very memorable moment, what does the king do? The king extends his scepter. And according to protocol, she touches it. And the reason the text tells us he extended his scepter was why? Because she found, she found favor in his eyes. And it's not hard to find some Christological connections there, is it? If you've been a Christian for any length of time. The scepter thing, beautiful devotionals and sermons done on that particular aspect of this book. Indeed, it is a picture of the gospel. God now extends his scepter of mercy to humanity. But this scepter of mercy... This entrance into God's presence because of his favor, because of his mercy and grace, is not free. It was purchased at great great price. The only reason God can extend his scepter of mercy is because he dropped the rod of fiery judgment on his son. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. It was purchased at the cost of the blood of the son. Now, there's something else in this first section that I think is pretty cool. 
I don't know if the divine author intended to, to, to communicate this, so I may be taking a leap, but we'll see. In chapter four, she's in three days of prayer and fasting. What would they wear during three days of prayer and fasting? Sackcloth and ashes, right? You've, you've heard that, all that kind of thing. Chapter five, it tells us she now dons some royal robes. And I think that perhaps might be divinely um, indicated way that she is now finding identity not in herself, but in her God. Doesn't the scripture say that we are all in our natural, sinful, depraved condition, dressed in filthy rags, sackcloth and ashes? And yet when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you become clothed in the righteousness of Christ. People say, what kind of clothes do I need to wear to go to church? Forget what you need to wear to go to church, to go to God. And that is the righteousness of his son. I love, I love that one song. It says, faultless, dressed in Christ alone. Then what does it say? Faultless to stand before the throne. And so let, let me ask you this. Have you found favor? Have you touched the scepter? I'm not asking if you've been in church, if you've been baptized. You can be baptized till every tadpole in the pond knows your name, data, rank, and social security number. That won't save you. You just come up with what? Have you, have you come to Christ? Have you found favor? Are you dressed in his righteousness? These are, these are gospel arrows right in the book of Esther. But now moving on, moving back to Esther herself. It's interesting that her name is mentioned 37 times in this book. 37 times. 15 of those times, it's attached to the word queen. Queen Esther. And all but one of those 15 occurrences of Queen Esther happens after chapter 5, verse 1, when she chooses to identify openly with the people of God. And Karen Jobes makes an excellent application in her wonderful commentary. She says this. She says it was not, Esther did not assume, this is the way she puts it, Esther did not assume the power and the honor of her position until she found her true identity as a woman of God. And that's what the rest of, that's what the, rest of the book is going to show, how her identifying with God begins to change the trajectory of her life. I think it's, I think it's, um, I think that's really important. You might be a dad, you might be a mom, you might be a student, you might be an athlete, you might be an employee, you might be an employer, you might be a black person or a white person or an Asian person or a Hispanic person, but I'm just going to tell you, you will, until you find your primary identity in God, those identities will actually just take you down. It's only when you find your primary identity in Christ that you can be in those things all that God created you to be. And I'm going to come back to that on the tail end of this message. What we see now in the rest of the book is Esther utilizing her gifts and her position for the kingdom of God. And, and, and I'm just going to dispatch with this pretty quickly because I want to get to Haman. But in this chapter 5, in this section, the king asks Esther what? Do you remember what he asked her? What's that? What's your wish? He says, up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you, which is 
he's being pompous, okay? He doesn't really mean that. He's just wanting to say, well, what a big shot I am. I'm so gracious, I'll give half my kingdom. That, that, it was just hyperbole. They didn't really do that because if it was true, anybody in their right mind would say, well, scoot over, king. I'll split the kingdom with you then. Let me sit on the throne with you. So just a way of saying I'm a big shot, but I do want to offer something. Do you remember how Esther responds? This is her moment where she says, Haman's about to do that dastardly deed to all my people. Does he do that? Does she do that? What does she do? She says, I planned a dinner party, and I want you and Haman to come. People say, are you chickening out? What's up, girl? This is your opportunity. Now you're going to ask for a dinner party? No, she's not chickening out. She's she's getting the king more invested in in the whole situation, I think, building even more favor with him. She's not lowering the boom, let's put it like that, because she's letting God set the snare. So they have that, that banquet, that dinner party, Again, the king basically says, listen, Esther, I know you didn't risk your neck for a banquet. What do you really want? To which she says, well, if I found favor in your sight, you're like, well, wait a second, Esther, you already had. Again, she's trying to emphasize this new position, this new identity. And she says, I'd like to have a second party for both of you. Can you come tomorrow? And you see in chapter six, the crazy sovereignty of God using insomnia to save his people. Now, we're not going to go to chapter 6, but by the way, the fact that God uses insomnia to save his people shows that the ultimate hero of not just Esther of every book aren't the human characters, but the divine God behind them all. That's, I think that's important for the way we read the Bible. So what do you see? You see Esther beginning to find her identity in God. You find, on the other hand, Haman finding his identity in people's approval and personal accomplishment. Not that that would be the temptation of anybody here, including me, right? So let's check it out. Let's go down to uh, verse 9. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. The spotlight here turns to Haman. Haman's pretty pumped up. He's, He's pretty happy. He's euphoric. Probably it's boosted by, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon or, or Wild Irish Rose, whatever they're drinking. But uh, he's definitely feeling it, right? He's joyful. He's glad at heart thinking, my, my, my. I'm the man. They had a party for the top two kingdom people in the kingdom. I'm one of those guys, and they're going to have a party for me tomorrow. It's going to be a great day. I am the man. But read on. It says, when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. You're like, whoa. I mean, that sounds like a, this is a pretty drastic pendulum swing of emotion, isn't it? He's filled with happiness, and now he's filled with despair. That quickly. He's not just irritated. The Bible says here, he was filled with wrath. You're like, what is up with that, dude? That's just illogical. Let let me rehearse your cred, credentials. You are number two in the kingdom. You've been invited to an exclusive party, just you and the number one, today and tomorrow, and there's a single Jewish man sitting outside this old city gate who won't pay homage to you, and you're going to get all wrapped around the axle about that? Talk about loss of proportionality, right? Talk about how illogical that is. And you know what? It's just as illogical as each and every one of us finding our identity 
and people's approval or personal accomplishment, right? Isn't it? Have you, have you ever done that? Have you ever thought, I'm great because of what I accomplished, or I'm great because of what I said, I'm great because of what they're saying about me. See, no matter, here's the thing about finding your identity and people's approval and personal accomplishment. No matter how much recognition you get, no matter how many promotions you get, no matter how many raises you get, it's never what? It's never enough. The proud are always, are never satisfied. Pride itself is never satisfied. There's always one more floor. There's always one more Award. There's always one more person to see that. Just the way it is, right? Does anybody feel that at all? At all? You know, <laughs> yeah. I, let, let me give you something. I play, uh, I play old man's baseball. It's a 45 uh, and over wood bat league. We got some decent players, some ex-pros, some major leaguers. Um, but it's old, I call it old man baseball. 45 and over. I'm 48. And uh, a couple of games ago, I did something I don't think I re- remember doing. Maybe I did it in Little League or something like that. I hit two home runs. And uh, no, I'm not that. It just, it just, the stars were aligned that game, okay? All right? So I, um, I come this far from hitting the third home run. Said it's a foul ball, and I get a single. And you know I drive home thinking, man, I could have three home runs. Man, I could have three home runs. I'm like, dude, you never hit two home runs. Why aren't you celebrating that? right? And he got a single to boot. Three for three. Not a bad day at the plate. But it's like John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. When you are finding your identity in anything outside of God, it will never be enough. What, what, what is it for you? What's your particular temptation to find identity in regards to people's approval and personal accomplishment? The proud are never satisfied. This is a small, insecure man with a large, fragile ego. Verse 10, verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. He found sudden virtue, right? 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 No, he found no virtue. You know what he's probably saying to himself? Okay, this punk is going to diss me like that. You know what? His whole people are going to get wiped out. We'll see who gets the last laugh. I think that's probably how he's finding virtue. Sometimes people feel, it looks like people are showing virtue. They're not. There's just another sinful motivation behind that action. Well, he sends and brings for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Now, why does he call for his friends and his wife? He just wants to have a good old-fashioned time, a family and friends fellowship. What does he want to do? He wants to have an old-fashioned brag party. He's about to go Facebook crazy, right? (laughs) Telling everybody how great he is. Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, which no doubt he had told them about 78 times previously. He talked about the number of his sons. You're like, dude, I think your wife probably knows the number of sons better than you. She can tell you what time they were born. Telling his wife the number of sons they have? This dude's got a bragging problem. All the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he'd advanced above all the officials and servants of the king. Can you just imagine them listening to him, rolling their eyes? Once again, he's bragging. Then he said, even Queen Esther, let no one come but but me with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. This is just one big brag session. This is like one of those year-end letters. You ever get one of those? You know? 
Yeah, uh, you know, we jetted off to Cancun last weekend, and we uh, did a, a tour of the Swiss Alps in South Africa the month before, and, and, and my three-year-old just became honored as an Oxford scholar. You know, you're like, well, we want an extended family camping trip, and none of my kids got kicked out of school, so it was a great year. That's my year. And, no, my kids are actually really good students. But, um, you know, that's what he's doing right there. He's just one big brag session. And what do they say? Well, what does he say? He says, yet all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Again, it just, it's just, the Holy Spirit is highlighting this man's propensity to find identity in people's approval and personal accomplishment. And they give him some not so savory advice. Then, and it would have been great if you had a wife and friends. I hope you're a wife and friends who says, man, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. What you really crave, accomplishment and purpose, is found in Jesus Christ, his finished work, the bloody cross and the empty tomb. But they don't do that. They play to his pride. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. Like I think one five feet high would probably have done the job, or 10 feet high. Let a gallows 50 cubits, that's 75 feet high, be made. And in the morning... Tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it, then go joyfully with the king to the feast. The idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Haman uh, shows us what it looks like to center your life on something besides God. Now, let's contrast them, okay? Esther shows us what it means to begin to find your true identity in who God is. You get a new life, right? No matter what's happened in the past, and I I love, I came across this quote, I can't remember who said it, but she said, the past things you have experienced in life may explain you, but they don't have to define you. And if you've read through the book of Esther, that's actually a very powerful statement. She gets new life, and she gets purpose. Now, for all she knows at the beginning of this chapter, she's going to lose her neck. So your purpose might include persecution and death, It ain't going to necessarily be your best life now. But she does find purpose as she assumes her identity as a true woman of God. That's Esther. Haman, however, shows us what happens when we find our identity outside of God. There's actually a theological expression for that. What does it mean to make a non-God into your God? What's that called? It's called idolatry. We're talking about idolatry right here. Looking to a non-God to be your God. And Haman is a case study in what happens in our heart when our idols are challenged. Because all through this chapter, his idols have been challenged, right? And you'll find three things that happen when you start finding your identity in something or someone outside of God. And I think it's very relevant for today. Number one, you will experience despair. Despair. Again, did you notice how he just was slingshotting all over the place with his emotions? At one point, he's, he's experiencing euphoric happiness, and then, and then wrath, and then he's happy, and then he's despairing, and, and just back and forth. He, it, it, it's like the guy's a manic depressant. And, and there are you know, real physiological reasons and biological reasons sometimes for mood swings, but... I think sometimes we're a little too quick to sign it to that instead of maybe some spiritual implications. 
What does David say in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32 when he was not walking with God? He says, my bones were like, you know, burning within me. And he, he gives all this, these descriptions of, of, of what it means to suffer when you are looking for love in all the wrong places, which is what you've been doing. And if you are centering your life on anything besides God, you will, you'll experience great happiness at times when that little God is doing its thing. But because there's nothing at the end of the day but a log totem pole, when it gets toppled, you will, it, it'll be despairing to you. It doesn't matter what it is. I ain't just talking about red light district sins. How about respectable sins? How about, how about finding your identity even in beautiful things like a family or ministry or spouse? When that thing unravels, it can't, it can't save you. Despair is what happens when we find our identity in personal accomplishment or, in, or people's approval. Now, the second thing that I think that happens is demonization, demonization. And what I mean by this, if you idolize something, you will demonize whatever threatens it. If you idolize something, you will demonize whatever threatens it. This can, there can be humorous uh, illustrations of this. How about a New York Yankees and Boston Red Sox fans? <laughs> There's no love lost between them. It's a great baseball rivalry in the American League East. Sometimes even baseball is not humorous, though. Do you remember a few years ago, there's a, out in the West Coast, you have the Dodgers and the uh, Giants. They're, they're, they're uh, what are they called? They're, they're like enemies. They're, uh, you know, great series. They're rivals. Enemies is a little strong. Although, not for this illustration. There was a Giants, there was a Los Angeles Dodgers fan visiting uh, a game at Candlestick Park back when Candlestick was up. And after the game, do you know what some Giants fans did to that Dodgers fan? Nearly killed the guy. He was in a coma in the hospital for two or three weeks because of of a beating he got simply for being a Giants fan. I mean, I'm sure they exchange words for being a Dodgers fan. See, whatever you idolize, you'll demonize whatever threatens it. That's what happens in this book. Haman idolized being Persian. And then the responsibility and honor he had in the king's court. Because he idolized being Persian, who did he demonize? He demonized the Jewish people. He was trying to plot their entire holocaust. Now, of course, that would have nothing to do with today, right? I mean, you think about, as we heard prayed about, the events in Charlottesville, which I was thinking about, well, how would I feel if I was there with my youngest son or just any of my friends? I mean, you probably need to get bail money for me, okay? Because, I mean, just ugly, vitriolic things that people do and we're saying, especially, you know, the, 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 the Nazi flags and chants and all that. I mean, that, when you idolize something, you'll demonize whatever you see as a threat to it. And you'll jump on board with hate movements like that, right? But it's not just white people who can fall prey to this. Let's be clear about that, right? I'm known to be an equal opportunity offender as I preach, just so you know, Okay. Sometimes black people can so idolize their ethnicity that they can demonize white people, carte blanche. Instead of wanting reconciliation, which is biblical, they might want revenge. There's no, there's no ethnicity that's immune to this since the fall, right? We, we have a young man named uh, Tim, or Tim Lee, 
I'm sorry, Nick Lee, who we, uh, is part of our elder apprentice program. He's, he's Korean. He was telling me about in Korea during World War II, um, there was some, there was a, another Asian people group that came over to work. Uh, some of them um, uh, had children with, with, with Koreans and, and, the, and, and the result of, of, those, of those two people coming together and having children, those people are demonized by pure-blood Koreans and they have, it's horrific. See, there's no, no, there's no culture or people group that's immune to this. When you idolize your ethnicity, You'll demonize anyone or anything that you think might threaten the purity, if you will, of your people, right? Do we see that, don't we? What else can people idolize and thus cause to demonize others? What else? How about money, economic level, right? If you idolize being wealthy, then you'll demonize people who don't have much money. You'll say stuff like, you know, they, they don't want to work. They just want to hand out um, they're good for nothing. All they want to do is collect. They're not taking advantage of any opportunities. You know, you've heard all that, right? And on, on, on the other hand, if you do- demonize being, if you idolize being poor, you're going to demonize the rich. What are you going to say? It was just given to them. They were born with a silver spoon in their mouth and all those similar expressions, right? What, what are some other things that people can idolize and thus cause demonization of what would challenge you? What else? Religion. What's that? Religion. Yeah. Yep, sure. What's that? Beauty. Beauty. I struggle with that one when I look at myself in the mirror. <laughs> but it's true, it's, it's true. Yeah, you can. What else? What else can we so idolize that we demonize anything that, that, that threatens it? Education. Education, yeah. I mean, you name it, anything. Even, even uh, you know, even your nationality, you know, um, I'm, 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 I was serving in the Marine Corps. Um, I think there's a biblical case to be made for patriotism, um, but I think that needs to be separated from jingoism. You know what jingoism is? See, a lot of people don't, they don't make the, the, the distinction. Jingoism is a fancy way of saying that you basically, you worship your country, right? And so there's, there's never been anything done wrong or will can be done wrong and everything can be explained away. Patriotism says, you know what? I appreciate my country, uh, but I understand there's also some things that aren't right and I want to work towards that as, I, as I'm grateful for the freedoms that I do have. See, but if you idolize anything, then you'll demonize, right, anything that could potentially rear its ugly head against it. Go on and on. What else could we potentially idolize? Subculture. Subculture? Yeah. In what way? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Or... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep, that's exactly right. You can idolize your style of church. Man, I've done that. We get discipleship. Other churches don't. Man, that's just, that's stinking idolatry to God, right? Isn't it? So we just got to be careful even when we take a stand on good things that we don't make it an idol. Only, listen, only when you understand and embrace the gospel can you love those who are different or even who are truly legitimate enemies on the physical level. And I find it interesting that those who talk most about let's just love everyone and be tolerant are those who sometimes can be the most hateful and intolerant when their worldview is challenged. That's a side sermon right there. There's despair, there's demonization, and there's finally destruction. It's interesting, sobering, that the very 
monument to Haman's pride, the gallows, is the means upon which he finds his ultimate destruction. Because you read the next two chapters later, that's what happens. Reminds me of Proverbs, uh, is it 16, 18? Which is the epitaph for many, many a person. Pride goes before destruction. Now, I need to wrap this up. John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. Let's not slough that off as some small thing. The stakes are so high with our idolatry. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following says, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor uh, homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. It goes on to name a bunch of, of, of different categories. But the word is there, idolatry. Like the stakes are really high. If someone never finds identity in Jesus Christ, they're going to spend their entire life, as I alluded to in the introduction, jumping on one treadmill to the next treadmill to the next treadmill to the next treadmill trying to find an identity before that last treadmill spits them out into eternal destruction. And as believers, as believers... Sometimes that old assembly line of idols can start cranking out idols afresh in hearts, can it not? And I would just invite you, I would invite you to, to, to take some time to trace out the despair that you might experience in your life. Trace out the demonization that you do in life. Trace out the, 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 the smaller, low-grade destruction that you experience in your life. Trace it to its source. And maybe... Just maybe you like me will find that in certain areas, I in fact am not finding my primary identity in Jesus Christ. Now, thankfully, whether you are a believer or not, this passage points us to the one who came to free us from the power and idolatry of sin. I already made some references to the gospel in the beginning, but but check this out. When you think of gallows, what do you think of? When you read, the, you see the word gallows, what do you think of? I think of like the Wild West, blowing sagebrush, you know, wood platform, hangman's noose and all that, right? But that's not really what's going down there. It's referring to a primitive form of crucifixion that the Persians did in which the victim would be impaled upon like this through a stake through their body and held out for everyone to see. You better not mess with the stake, baby, because this is what's going to happen to you. And they wanted one 75 feet high, so he'd be stuck way up there. Now, the Greeks took that primitive form of crucifixion and they perfected it into what we know as crucifixion of Jesus Christ when they would pierce the victim through his or her wrists and through his or her feet. Jesus Christ was pierced for our transgressions, which includes our idolatry, our looking for love in all the wrong places. And you look at contrast. Haman built a cross to hang a man on. Jesus became a man to hang on a cross for all humanity. And Haman couldn't find it in his heart to forgive one man of one thing, namely Mordecai bowing down to him. But Jesus Christ can find it in his heart to forgive anyone of anything who comes to him by faith and repentance, all right? I don't know where you stand with the Lord. I, I just want, I want to plug this, that this identity that you need in Jesus, you do not earn or achieve, you receive it 
based on what he has done in his perfect life, sacrificial death, and his resurrection when he did the Heisman on sin, death, hell, and Satan. And the Bible in 1 John 5 ends with this quote, little children, keep yourself from idols. And the primary way you keep yourself from idols is by looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord, I pray that you would use uh, these words from your holy book and from Esther 5 to shake us and to reveal us where we are finding identity in the wrong place. Because, Lord, that's just a Haman-like outcome. There will be despair, there will be demonization, and there will be ultimately destruction. But Lord, thank you that Esther reminds us that no matter where we've been, no matter the personal compromise we might have done or the pressures of a system over us has caused us to do, Lord, all of that, all of that, all of that, Lord, um, doesn't have to define us as we turn to the God who came not just to define us but to die for us and rise again for us. Lord, I pray that you use this to make your bride look a little bit more like you would want us to look and for us to be what you would want us to be in the streets and in the kitchens and in the workplaces and the ball fields and the schoolyards and the classrooms of everyday life. Amen.